Okay, so uh, we're going to be done. This is it. Revelation. Uh, we're going to finish it up. Four chapters, 19 through 22. So about two hours from now, we'll break for lunch, and then, and then we'll, we'll gather together again. And uh, no, we're going we're gonna, to, again, this is, uh, this is meant to be felt. It's meant to be experienced. It's, it's, it's not bet, meant to look for a code uh, to decipher. It's, uh, it's, it's a feeling, and that's all, that's all good. You can, we can trust those things. So it's meant to be visualized. Uh, so, so we're going to stay up here again. We're going to look at themes, and, and a few times we'll, we'll drop down and we'll grab some words and we'll talk about those things. Uh, but but mainly we're going to stay up, up high again. So I'm going to read a little bit from 19, a little bit from 21, a little bit from 22, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit uh, about it. So before we do that, let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for your word, uh, for this ancient book. Um, thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring those who, who wrote it as they struggled um, to to figure out who you are and who we ought to be in the world and how we ought to live. And, and Holy Spirit, we pray that as, as we bring that struggle from back then into today, that you would show us and lead us and guide us in figuring out exactly who you are and how you want us to be in this world. And God, we ask once again that you would change us we ask that you would transform us. We ask that you would make us like Jesus. Amen. So, starting at, at 19, I can't say it's on the screen, so if you, if you want to just listen, you can close your eyes and listen in if you want, and we're going to skip around a little bit. But. So after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute. So that's Babylon, Rome, imperial ideology, forcing things, violence, that sort of thing. We've been talking about it for all these weeks. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Now, hang on a second. Like, we've been reading all of these metaphors and things that we're like, what does that mean? It's like, oh my goodness. And we try to unpack it, and we try our best to do it, and I think we've done a really good job. And here we are at the end, right at the end. And finally, John's like, hey, by the way, this is what this one means. 
the, the fine linen is like the righteous acts of, of the saints. It's like, finally, you give us some plain language. But you've met people like this, right? The, 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 the righteous, these people who have like this aura about them, they just carry themselves with, with a kind of graciousness and they sort of, they ooze this aura of, of love and it's attractive. Like you want to be around people like this. It's almost like they're wearing something. Like you've experienced that, right? You know what that feels like. It's like fine linen they're wearing, reflecting God. Oh my goodness. Anyway, then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at at his feet to worship him. But he was like, no, don't do that. I'm a servant just like you and with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. We'll skip over to chapter 21, talk about the judgment of Babylon and the the beasts are judged and they're outside. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. He said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Oh, that's like outside the walls of this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and new earth, which, by the way, has 12 gates. And the gates are always open, by the way, which is fantastic. Then we move on to chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Oh my goodness. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We will go that far. So interesting, isn't it? 
So on April 29, 2011, huge event happened, big time. Big time event that affected roughly a third of the population of human life on this planet. It's huge. You know what it was? It was only the wedding of the century. You don't remember? April 29, 2011, over 2 billion people on the planet watched. Maybe some of you did. They either watched online or on TV, or maybe they were there, and maybe they were along the, the parade route. 2 billion people watched as Prince William and Kate Middleton got hitched. Do you remember this? I watched part of it. I'm kind of embarrassed by that. I watched it. Not the whole thing. I'm not like that weird, but I remember watching it. Right? It was huge. You want to know how much that wedding cost? $34 million for a wedding. $34 million. Most of which, guess what, was spent on security. Right? Which makes sense, because when you have a lot of wealth, the wealth has to be secured and all that kind of stuff. you got to spend to secure it. Anyway, we go on and on and on. Here's some other numbers. $600,000 spent on two wedding receptions. One wasn't good enough for the royals. No, they had to have two wedding receptions. $80,000 on two different wedding cakes. What? Eighty grand on cake? you got to be kidding me. $60,000 on champagne? They know how to throw a party up in the royal family. $60,000 on champagne. Okay, here's a couple more. Just a cool $800,000 on flowers alone. And not a big deal. Eight hundred grand on flowers. Right? Kate's dress. Any guess on how much it costs? Any, any guesses? $434,000. That's two homes. Two, that's two mortgages for us, y'all. That was her wedding dress. Oh my goodness. A $34 million wedding. Over two billion people tuned in worldwide just to see it happen. Friends, can a wedding get any bigger than that? Well, they have kids, so we'll see in about 20 years-ish, right? Because it'll be bigger because kids always have to outdo their parents if they can, and these can. I think that's the biggest, most extravagant, extravagant, ginormous wedding celebration in the history of the world. Huge. Well, guess what? God is planning a wedding. We read about it. God is planning a wedding, and the wedding that God is planning is going to make that wedding look teeny-weeny, eensy-bitsy. It's just going to look like a little bitty baby wedding, because that's what it was compared to this wedding that God is planning. You liked that. Thank you. <laughs> and guess what? God is inviting the whole world, because for God so loved who? The, whole, the world, the, the cosmos, which really encompasses all of creation, for God so loved the world, all of those who have gone before us, all of those who are here today, and all of those who have yet to come. God is inviting the world. Like, here's the deal, though. You don't have to come because this is an invitation. 
God invites. You can refuse the invitation, right? God is inviting the whole world to come. But you don't have to come. God is not going to make you come. God isn't going to force you to come. If you want to, you can hang out outside with the dragon and the two beasts that we've been reading about. If you want to, and hang out in that, light, that, that fiery lake of burning sulfur lake fire place. Like you can, you can hang out out there with the dragon and the two beasts if you want, but God wants you to come. God wants you to be there. You want to know why? Because we're the ones getting married. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's a metaphor. Can we be okay with metaphor? We have been for a while, so let's be okay with metaphor. What are weddings about? Weddings are the celebration of the union of two people. The two shall become one. It's a celebration of union. So this morning, we're going to think about this great wedding God is planning, and Lyra is excited about it. So we're going to talk about it in two different ways. So we're going, to, we're going to talk first, we're going to talk about this wedding that God is planning by talking about the union between the lamb and those who follow the ways of the lamb. So we're talking about this union between Jesus and the church. We're also going to talk about this union, this wedding that God is planning as a union between heaven and earth coming together. There will be no more veil separating the two, John is telling us. Right? Heaven and earth will become one, and it will become our new home. God is putting things back together again. See, I am making all things new. And all of this, all these, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about that which is going to happen way out there. Like at the end, when God finally and fully puts it all back together again. And, we th- and when I realize this, when we start thinking about this and we start talking, we can barely talk about it because we don't have all the details. And we start thinking about it and imagining it and dreaming about it. And John is using all this weird language to describe it. And we're like, why are we talking about this? Why does it matter? What's the big deal? Like that's way out there. Why? And what? We can't even barely talk about details. Why, do, why are we even trying? What's the big deal? How does this affect my life today? We'll talk about that too. Because the things that John tells us, yeah, it affects today, here, and now. First, let's talk about the wedding as the union between the Lamb and the followers of the Lamb. Chapter 19, verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, in order for us to understand this well, I think it's important for us to understand what the people in John's world would have thought about when they thought about this image of the wedding and this sort of process. It was a a process that moved towards union of the bride and the groom. 
So we do things differently now. It's, it's way different. The way they thought about weddings and this movement towards unit, union was, was a little bit different. So we're going to talk about this. So there are kind of three rough steps that happened as, as the bridegroom and the bride moved toward union. This is sort of how it worked. The bridegroom, step one, would leave his home, his father's house, where he still lived. Left his father's house, went to the house of the bride in order to meet with her father to negotiate with her father, get this, the purchase price for his daughter. Again, we do things a little bit differently now. Now we make the bride pay, bride's parents pay for everything, right? Back then it was like, I'm going to buy your daughter. I don't know. That's, we can't. That's what happened. So they would go. And then once the price was paid, guess what? At that point, they were legally husband and wife. They were legally married, and yet they wouldn't be together for a few months. And this was a covenant. The marriage covenant between, between them was sealed by the drinking of a cup of wine. This new covenant was sealed by drinking a cup of wine. Remind you of anything else. We'll get there. Step two. There's this period of separation, right? The bridegroom would go back to his father's house and be away from the bride for several months. During the separation, the groom, the bridegroom, would prepare a place in his father's house for he and his bride to eventually occupy. And the bride would be back in her father's house getting ready for the wedding celebration. Step three, the bridegroom would get all his buddies all his best friends. Like today we have groomsmen, same deal. All his best buddies, they'd get all dressed up, looking all schnazzy, right? And then they would, make, they would make their way back to the bride's house. Now, no one knew, everyone knew sort of a rough idea of when it was going to happen, but nobody knew, nobody knew the exact hour. Sometimes the groom would be like, we're going to show up at midnight, to make it a, a surprise. And his arrival would be preceded by a large shout. Hey, here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then the bride, obviously filled with all sorts of anticipation and excitement, would come out with her bridesmaids and meet the groom, and the groom would take her back to, her fa- to his father's house. When they got there, there would be all kinds of people there who were all dressed up looking schnazzy too. And there'd be a great feast and a great celebration. And sometimes it would last one to two weeks. Talk about a celebration. That's how it worked for them. Now, I want you to think about that in the context of what Jesus said to his followers the night before he was arrested and eventually crucified. Listen to what he says. He said this in John 14. In my father's house, There are many rooms. And I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you so that you can be with me. He's talking He's using wedding imagery. He's talking about a wedding. Now think about that in the context of the Last Supper, right? 
he held up a cup of wine. Remember what, what, the, what the bridegroom and the father sealed the covenant with? He got a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, remember me. He's saying, I've taken the worst that humanity has to offer. I've taken the worst. It's violence. It's brute force. It's sin. I've taken it in my body. And in that, it exposes all of that stuff for what it is. It, it's judgment by exposure. I've taken it. All that guilt, all that shame, all of the ways in which you've messed things up, I've taken it. You are forgiven now. You belong to me. Friends, no matter how far you've run, Jesus gave up his life in order to run after you and find you. No matter how broken you are or no matter how broken you think you are, Jesus has given his life to, to make you whole. Again, no matter what you've done, Jesus says, you're forgiven. You belong to me. And then his resurrection is a sign that one day we will be made like him because not even death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We belong to him. We will. So we have a wedding. In some ways, we already are united, but one day it will be complete. We will be completely united with Jesus. So we have the union between the Lamb and the followers of the Lamb. Next we have the other way we can think about this union. This is a wedding between, a union between heaven and earth. And again, this is all kind of like out there. We're like, why does it matter? Why are we talking about it? Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne, said, see, behold, pay attention, I am making all things new. So there's this idea, and he's trying his best to describe it, that heaven and earth will finally become one. God's not going to destroy the whole thing and blow up and start over again. No, heaven's coming down, and there will be a union. It becomes one. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning. Everything will be put back together again. Everything will be made right again Again, we're talking about it like, like way out there. Like, why does this matter? Like, why does John even bring it up? Like, what, what do we do in the meantime? Like, we're here. That's way over there somewhere. Like, who cares? Why does, why does it matter? Tell me why it matters. Let me kind of take a shot at it. This whole book, this whole vision, which is so much about what we worship and who we worship is an invitation. The whole thing 
from chapter 1 to 22, it's John's invitation to follow the Lamb and to follow the ways of the Lamb, which are love, grace, healing, mercy, forgiveness. It's an invitation to work toward that vision of heaven and earth becoming one. Jesus, when he started his ministry, do you know what he said? He said, see, look, y'all, behold, pay attention. The kingdom of God is close at hand. It's near. Repent, which means turn around and believe this good news. Repent. Lean into that idea. Lean into that. In other words, this world is headed somewhere. It's good. It's bold. It's beautiful. The kingdom of God. Lean into that. Work alongside of that. Work toward putting things back together again. Lead with love. Work towards justice. Work towards the flourishing of all human beings and all of creation. If it doesn't belong in heaven, get rid of it. If it doesn't belong to the ways of the Lamb, throw it away. It's not needed. It's not necessary. God's going to put it outside this great grand city that's coming anyway. See, even the fact that this new heaven and new earth is a great, great big grand garden city is an invitation for us to participate now. It's a city, but it's also a garden, a garden city. Fascinating. Think about how the whole thing started way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It all began in a garden. God created Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden, said, be fruitful, multiply order things, name things, participate with me in the creation of things. And do you know what we human beings set about doing almost immediately? Do you know what we set about building almost immediately out of the garden? Do you know what we started building? Cities. Like read the story. We started building cities right away. Human ingenuity, human creation. We started building cities. It's fascinating. More people now than ever before live in cities, and that trend continues. So when God gives us a city, it's like God's way of honoring us. It's like God's way of saying that the human project is very good. It's like God's way of saying that what we create can be really really good. Do you know what that means? It means that what we do now, it matters at home, at work, and play. What we do now matters. Things like art, things like music, things like science, engineering, teaching, healing, playing. Anything that exists now for the, for the purpose of human flourishing so that everybody has what they need, to live full, happy, healthy, flourishing lives, God looks at it and says, oh, that's good. That's going to be in my city. We're going to put that in my city. That's where that belongs. The good things we do matter now because in a sense, they go on forever. Like our lives matter a whole bunch. The city of Ames matters a whole bunch. The whole world matters a whole bunch. So we help it flourish that's why it matters now, because God says the good things you do now, you build now, the things you learn now, create now for human flourishing, that's all going to belong in my city. We're going to put that in my 
city, and we're not always very good at this. Are we? We support things that tear down and destroy. The church does this. We're not very good at this. Brian Zahn, who's a pastor in Missouri, Word of Life Church, he, he wrote this recently. Um, the church shouldn't be about guns and gavels. Unpack that one for a little bit. The church shouldn't be known for guns and gavels. Guns. Violence. Destroying. Brute force. The things we've been talking about. Gavels. Judgment. Grasping after power. Making people behave the way we want them to behave. No. We shouldn't be guns and gavels because Jesus called us salt and light. Salt and light, light bringing warmth. Salt working subversively underneath the surface. And when salt is used rightly, it makes everything taste better. What happens if there's too much salt? Blah! You want to puke, right? When you're too aggressive with the salt, nobody likes it. We're we are not to be about guns and gavels, but salt and light. And Jesus' people throughout history, at our best, have been really good at being salt and light and helping human beings flourish. I'm just going to name a few of them right now, right? And then we can talk about others later. The church is the largest single provider of health care in the world. Did you know this? Think about how many hospitals are named after church denominations. I was born in Phoenix Baptist Hospital. Right? Baptist Hospital. We got Mercy. We got Methodists. Think about how many hospitals are named after we're the large, the church is the largest single, single provider of health care in the world. Oh my goodness, the largest single provider of education in the world. The early church fathers successfully campaigned against infanticide and stood up for the rights of women by codifying marriage as a sacrament. The first orphanages, guess what they were? churches, and churches pioneered the first homes for the elderly and first homes for the disabled. It was followers of Jesus in the 19th century who led society to abolish the slave trade, right? who pioneered modern social work, modern foster care, modern nursing, free health care for the terminally ill. Y'all, free health care used to be our thing. Like, we used to be like, let's do that. That's good because everybody deserves that to live full, happy, healthy lives. It used to be our thing. Can you imagine that? Listen to this. A hundred out of the first 110 universities in this country were founded by the church. A hundred out of the first, like education, like real education and the actual truth used to be something that we wanted and held up as awesome. Like places like Yale, Princeton, and Harvard. Oh my goodness, founded by the church. It was a missionary who founded the most successful world literacy effort in history. Christians were pioneers of free schooling huh, for poor people, including orphans. A pastor spearheaded a campaign in the 19th century to protect children from abuse at home or in the workplace. And a Christian woman who campaigned for the age of consent to be set at 16 so that, so that young girls couldn't be taken advantage of and abused. Salvation Army, 
pioneered radical care for the poor. It used to be our thing and disadvantaged in society. And the Quakers campaigned for prison reform. Christians were at the front end of promoting fair trade in the 20th century, as well as microfinance for poor countries. It was the church who led the effort for the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Pope Francis, one of his, one of his ideas late, lately was putting showers and free haircuts for the homeless in St. Peter's Square. People would show up for a shower. They would be greeted by an attendant with free toiletries. Just recently, you know what he did? He found out that there was a group of transgender people who sought sanctuary in a Catholic church. He didn't shout from his high place and say, we can't do that. No, he went there and visited them and met with them and showed them grace and love and opened his arms. Like at our best, wow. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. We haven't always been at our best. Let's get back to being our best. Let's get back to that stuff because it feels like for a lot of, lot of years we've been, been just grasping after power. We've been like brute force and making people do what we think they ought to do. That's, that's, that's been our way. We've been following the dragon and his beast for too long. It's time for us, it's time for us to, to lay down our guns and gavels, violence and judgment. It's time for us to lay those things down. It's time for us to be salt and light. We're followers of the lamb and the ways of the lamb. We belong to the one through grace and love, healing and forgiveness, gave up his life so that our lives might be made new. And now he's asking us to lay down our lives through grace and love and healing and forgiveness to participate in making the world new. If that's what the church is about, if that's what Jesus is about, if that's what following the lamb is about, then that's, I want to be a part of that. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Let's pray.